This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Hi everyone, Yonit and Jonathan here. Last episode, we broke Jonathan away from his vacation to update you on the flare-up in Gaza. But now we are returning to our uh, planned summer programming and bringing you a conversation. I think it's one of our favorites, Jonathan, with Scott uh, Galloway, podcaster, entrepreneur, um, I would say genius of technology uh, that we spoke to a few months ago. I would agree with you. This was one of those conversations that really stood out at the time. And then also people's reactions to it. People talked about it weeks afterwards. Partly, let's just face it. I mean, he's just got the most brilliant broadcast voice. <laughs> I think people just loved hearing him speak. But also really so wide ranging and his ability to go from, yes, as you say, tech, where he's just a kind of visionary, to education, to masculinity mm-hmm. and uh, and a crisis of maleness that is in our world. And he just ranges very catholically, I say, just before mentioning how he has a very interesting Jewish connection, has a kind of Jewish pride in some roots there. So it was just one of those conversations we loved as as it happened. And people loved it at the time. We thought if you missed it or if you wanted to listen to it again, now would be the ideal moment. Now, we have somebody uh, who is... So smart, a special guest for Unholy. And I'm going to leave it to you, Yoni, to tell our listeners who he is and to introduce him. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU, a serial entrepreneur and author, one of the most interesting, original uh, voices commenting on business, tech, global politics, among other things, host of two of our favorite podcasts, right, Jonathan? Prof G and Pivot with Kara Swisher was already on our uh, podcast. So we just had to bring you on, Scott. Hmm. uh, Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. We're having a Florida-Israel-UK meeting. You know, I I have to kind of open up by talking about something that is, I think it is Ukraine, but I think it's actually completely in your comfort zone because it kind of encapsulates business, big tech, and uh, and global politics. Mm Because I I kind of want to zoom out and and see that we have, I think, on the one hand, weakening democracies around the world. On the other hand, like big, powerful Uh, tech platforms that are being manipulated by uh, people, by autocratic regimes who spread information now basically can just invade a country because they want to. Mm -hmm. I know this is an incredibly open question, but as a representative of a democratic country here, where did we fail? Wow. Uh, (laughs) We're going to need a bigger boat. I think it starts, (laughs) I think it starts with, at least in America, with a kind of a lack of trust or, um, lack of respect or investment in our institutions. I think since Reagan in the 80s, Reagan had this saying that the seven most dangerous words were, uh, hello, I'm from the government and here to help. And here to help." And we started thinking of our government as the enemy. And it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy as we cut taxes and lowered spending uh, or provided our government with less resources. Uh, government became just less... Uh, adept at what they were doing. Money kind of overran government or politics. And I think people lost faith in their institutions. They don't go to church as much uh, and they distrust institutions. And then they have these algorithms that will um, find profit 
in tearing down institutions or setting us on each other. So our discourse has become more coarse. We no longer trust the government. And uh, I think these institutions represent connective tissue. Uh, so when we don't engage in public service or we don't trust our government, it's sort of like, well, what is America then? Is it just a platform for businesses and for fast food? Like, what is it? And also, um, we haven't had what I call an existential threat, and we may have that with the Russians pouring into Ukraine. But the notion that we're, you know, w we see our allies as as adversaries now is just sort of strange. Uh, so I think it's a lack of connective tissue. In the 50s and 60s and 70s in the U.S., we had great legislation because most of our leaders had served in the same uniform. I would argue that Israel doesn't suffer from the same divisiveness as we do, or at least that's my impression, because I don't know as much about it, because you've all served in the same uniform. I think that's really powerful, and that is I think Israelis see each other first as Israelis, not as conservative or as, as liberal. Uh, and here in the U.S., um, a third of each party sees the other party as their enemy, which is just sort of ridiculous when you think about it. And we get <clears throat> so caught up in arguments you know, right now, Republicans are very concerned that a trans swimmer represents a threat to us. And it's like, well, there's 190,000 people pouring over a border in Ukraine. Isn't that, isn't that a bigger threat? And people on the far left see, see you know, threats. That, so I think it's a lack of respect for our institutions. And I think there's a profit motive around setting us against one each other and finding enemies where we really aren't enemies. We might be competitors, but we're not enemies. On this point of connective tissue, I'm really struck by that. And I have wondered about it myself about the United States. There was a poll the other day that said there are among Republicans, more Republicans trust Vladimir Putin than trust Joe Biden. There was also, I just saw a photograph of a, a couple of Republicans at a Trump rally wearing a t-shirt saying, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And I'm putting those two things together with what you just said and wondering if it begins to make plausible what had previously seemed a slightly, you know, hyperbolic, hyperventilating scenario, which is that America could, it's plausible to imagine America coming apart, that actually, even without the old fashioned civil war stuff, um, and we talked about that with David Remnick on this podcast a while about, but whether the lack of connective tissue is so worrying to you that you can imagine a situation where actually America doesn't hold together anymore. Yeah, it's really, and I, don't, I, can't, I have trouble discerning how much of it is I'm getting older and just more pessimistic and depressed, or if these threats are as grave as they, they, they really are. But it doesn't make, it just dumb, dumbfounds me that, that we would show this type of affection. And everything's become politicized. So vaccines all of a sudden became a left and right thing. If you're conservative, right. you you don't believe in science, you question the efficacy of vaccines. If you're liberal, you think every conversation around societal issues should immediately be kind of a certain narrative or you they don't feel safe around you. There's no room for actual conversation or discussion or debate. The notion, I think that unfortunately for me, a lot of it, I think, well, how do we diagnose the problem before we can put in place some, some remedies. And for me in the U.S., it all comes step back to one central thing, and that is for the first time in our nation's history, 
Yeah, Jonathan and Yonit. A 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at 30. That's the central compact in any society, that your kids will do better than you. And for the first time in American history, that compact has been broken. And then especially, it's especially severe among young men. And that is uh, now for every male graduate from college in the U.S., which is still kind of this on ramp to a better life in the U.S., there's two female graduates. It's 60-40 uh, female to male college attendees, but it's two to one because more men drop out and don't matriculate to graduation. Um, you're seeing relative to any other cohort, and we don't talk about it because no one feels sorry for them, young men are failing uh, dramatically. They're three times as likely to uh, overdose. They're four times as likely to kill themselves or nine times as likely to end up in prison. They're not graduating from college, as we referenced. And as a result, they're not attractive as mates. We also, on the left, don't like to admit that women have different criteria for mating than men. Women mate socioeconomically horizontally and up. Men mate horizontally and down socioeconomically. And so when men are failing economically, there's an entire population of young men who are shut out from relationships. And the most dangerous person in the world is a young, angry, and alone male. If you look at the most violent, unstable societies in the world, they have too many of this cohort. And we are producing more of them in the U.S. than we've ever produced before. And I think that they are very susceptible to messages of aggression, mes messages of fake, what I'll call masculinity. And they're angry at the system, and they want to blame people, and they look at an individual uh, like Trump who is angry and says, it's not your fault. I mean, it's a very dangerous narrative that has come out, that, is, that has been present in our darkest moments in history, where you have young directionless males that aren't attaching to work, they're not attaching to school, and they're not attaching to relationships, and they're failing. The percentage of wealth controlled by people under the age of 40 has gone from 19% of GDP in the U.S. to nine. So they're broke and alone and have no guideposts in the form of relationships. And they're looking for a culprit. And then we have these nationalist people who come along and respect macho and want to restore your sense of masculinity and see aggression, see violence, see invasion, see discrimination against certain groups. They see as that as somehow being more politically courageous. And it leads to a very dark place. And unfortunately, because we hate each other so much here in the U.S., that we refuse to even acknowledge that we're all Americans and start developing more camaraderie for each other. So I, I worry about it a great deal. I, I do reverse engineer all of it, to in, almost all of it, to income inequality and algorithms that are find a profit motive and making us angry at each other. But whenever we in history have gotten to these levels of income inequality, the, the good news is it always self-corrects. The bad news is it corrects in one of three ways, war, famine, or revolution. And if you look at what's happened in the U.S., we have famine and pestilence and COVID are a form of, of famine. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have the greatest healthcare system. We control the supply chain of the vaccines. The vaccines were invented here. We have the greatest morbidity per capita of any wealthy nation. So we have famine. And I think we're having uh, a form of revolution. I think the social justice movements in the U.S. have been more violent and more uh, angry because there's this underlying incendiary of income inequality. And I think we're looking, um, we're, we, we also don't trust our allies, but I, I see it as very, uh, 
very unsettling. And I'm not entirely sure. I see the prescription as an investment in younger people, an investment in our institutions, and reinstituting a collective notion of what it means to be American uh, and reengaging with our allies. But I, I see it as incredibly troubling. I've never seen anything like this. That, that does sound really worrying. I, I want to actually use your expertise and I think something uh, also around the, the area of, of brand strategy and to, to pull you into talking about Israel, if we can. You mentioned that Israelis have a certain camaraderie because they, most of them, do a military service. Now, I'm a, a person from Tel Aviv sitting in, you know, the, most of the, one of the most volatile regions in the world. How is it that this economy here is growing, that the high-tech sector uh, is bringing up so money, so much money. On the other hand, we, of course, have uh, economic disparities. How do you explain all this? Th- what is going on here in this country? Well, you're, I mean, Israel has, I mean, Israel's a huge success story, uh, right? No natural resources and a huge investment in education. There's been tremendous kind of spillover from the military. I, mm-hmm. I'm an investor and on the board of a company called OpenWeb, started by two Israeli intelligence officers. Um, and to a certain extent, the fact that you're surrounded by people who want to kill you, I mean, you have real enemies, creates a collective, a collective camaraderie. And at the end of the day, you know, when missiles start firing over the border, you don't see yourself as part of the conservative party. You see yourself as Israeli. Our country has not been attacked. We were attacked on 9-11. But other than some submarines off the Pacific coast in like 1942, and 9-11, you know, we have Mexico, harmless Mexico to the south and friendly Canada to the north. There really hasn't been an existential threat that unifies us as Americans. And just as on campus, uh, on campuses across America, people are very upset around very real injustices towards uh, uh, special interest groups, whether it's people of color or gay people. And so, what I see on campus is they go hunting for fake racists. They go hunting for fake bigots because they're angry and they feel like they want to do something. So they wait until a hapless English professor says something inartful and they go after him. We have diversity and inclusion departments on universities and what are the most diverse and inclusive places in the world. So we've decided to go after each other rather than focusing on some of the very real problems that face, you know, that face us. And in the U.S., I feel as if we've decided to go after each other because the algorithms encourage it, because people are frustrated with income inequality, and we don't appear to have an existential threat that we can rally around. I mean, one of the more, one of the few silver linings in this invasion of Ukraine is I think it's given NATO new purpose and a new sense of, of gravity. NATO was sort of suffering from what I'd call brain death, and that is they couldn't figure out if they were there to protect against extremists, should they be should they be pushing back on China, and now it's pretty clear what NATO's for. And uh, it's brought all of us, all these allies have largely kept a spe- the peace since 1945 together to t- speak in a more meaningful way, I think, in a more serious way than, you know, maybe 9-11. I don't even know if that inspired as much cooperation, but my sense is we're, we're finally recognizing we are we are allies. Israel has education. It has existential threat such that you see each other as brothers and sisters under the same flag. I mean, you have your own political divisiveness, but I just don't see the same nonsense coming out of Israel. And also, you've made a massive investment, I think, uh, that's been supported definitely by the government in technology. 
and you made these huge investments in software that have paid off hugely. Uh, so it feels like the perfect storm of good things for Israel. But again, a lot of it is because I, I have a family on a Moshev that seems happy. I'm involved in mm-hmm. Israeli tech companies, so I see the mm-hmm. best of it. I'm sure you have your own issues as well. But it strikes me that the the investment in technology, the investment in education, the uh, uh, strategic positioning around technology, a existential threats that unify people under a collective cooperative, where they they respect each other and have their differences, and then at the end of the day go to sleep at as Israelis and wake up as Israelis. We wake up as Republicans or Democrats. I mean, where does that make any sense? So you just mentioned your fa- family in Israel. <laughs> you you don't come at this totally as an outsider. Just to be a little bit parochial for a minute, just tell us your own connections to some of this stuff because it's not completely abstract for you. Well, it, it's <clears throat> I'm an atheist, but I grew up. Uh, my mother's Jewish. Uh, I have family that lives in Israel. My cousin was a tank commander. We're all very proud of him. And, you know, one of the greatest alliances or, you know, it's kind of like Israel and America share this sort of special bond. Um, and it, it, it seems to breach across both parties, which is a good thing. But, yeah, I grew up – I just grew up, uh, you know, and a lot of it was just my mom. Like, no matter what it is, we, we support Israel. <laughs> and, you know, I made that, that trip that every teenager makes to Israel uh, with friends. So – you know, for me, it's just a—it's more of a cultural, and, and it's part of my heritage. Even though uh, I'm a rabid atheist, I—I uh, I just believe at the end of the day, I'm—you know—I'm an American. But I think if shit gets real, the place that's going to land our planes and fight with us would be Israel. And I—I'm not sure that's true of the other parts of the region. So, I have sort of this—maybe this not very <laughs> thoughtful, but a kind of a reductionist feeling that that is an alliance that is pretty important for 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 us. And there were a few weeks in Hebrew school as well, right? We there just, you go. I got kicked out of Hebrew school for that trying to That was my gangster move, Scott. I had to remind you of those couple of weeks <laughs> in Hebrew school. No, I was gonna. I was gonna ask something about education because you you obviously uh, make a lot of that. I think uh, Israelis might argue if there's enough of investment in in education. But you you know you talk about this a lot. You started a company that that provides <laughs> access to higher business education, Section Four. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to ask as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sending our kids to school. Does that mean we're preparing them from the, for the 21st century or just kind of subjecting them to some kind of unsuccessful babysitting apparatus? I think it's situational, and I'm not as familiar with the higher education system in Israel. In the U.S., mm-hmm. higher ed, I would argue, is sort of mo- morphed from this incredible upward lubricant. Uh, you know, the reason I'm here talking to you is through the generosity of taxpayers and something called the University of California, which let me get an amazing education, undergraduate and graduate degrees for a total tuition of all seven years of $7,000. And also even more important than the economic access was just access. When I applied to UCLA in 1982, the acceptance rate was 76%. And I had to apply twice to get in, but I got in. Uh, the acceptance rate now is 12%, meaning that mm-hmm. the sons of single mothers that aren't remarkable, and there's always a Hallmark Channel or fictional story about the remarkable kid from the inner city who's raised by a single mother and scores a genius on math. I can prove to every one of us that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. It's the top 1% that are going to college, and it's the top 1% that need college the least. 
The kids who need higher education are the unremarkables. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we've become obsessed with this sort of hermesification of higher education. And that is we take our best universities and there's become a non-economic and economic incentive to reduce admissions rates such that the head of the admissions department where I work at NYU stands up and says, we rejected 90% of our un- of our applicants, and we all stand up and clap as if, the- as if that's a good thing. And that, for me, is tantamount to the head of a homeless shelter bragging that he or she turned away 9 and 10 people last night. That's not why we're here. We're public servants. We're not fucking Chanel. So <laughs> I, I, in the U.S., we have turned higher ed from this incredibly egalitarian lubricant of upward mobility into the enforcer of this emerging caste system. And there are two cohorts that get into sort of the great elite universities. And elite universities in the U.S. are the best in the world. We're, we're great at making weapons, software, superhero films, and we're great at education, or at least higher education. And the two cohorts that are disproportionately populating our best universities are first and foremost the children of rich kids. You're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you come from a 1% income-earning household, top 1%, there's the industrial testing complex, all sorts of resources. And then we gloss over that uncomfortable fact by letting in what I call the freakishly remarkable. And the reality is most of us don't peak at 17. I mean, if you have a patent, our captain of the football team, and also uh, the backup singer in an off-Broadway show and you know, have built wells in Africa by the time you're 17, more power to you. But the majority of kids aren't like that. And in the U.S., it's become a bit of the Hunger Games, where if you win, you lead a remarkable life, but everybody else kind of dies sort of a slow, hideous death. And I would argue higher ed is supposed to be is about the unremarkables. The children of rich people end up with pretty – by the time they're out of high school, they have pretty good educations. They have contacts. They have skills. They need college the least. And those are the ones that are getting into the elite universities. So I don't know if the same thing is true – in Israel, but here uh, we have transferred one and a half trillion dollars in wealth from middle-class households to universities because there's sort of this trope in America where if you don't send your kids to college, you failed as a parent. And because the elite universities are so selective now and take so much pride in that, good kids that aren't amazing or don't have rich parents get arbitraged down to mediocre schools. And what you have in America is the majority of kids end up paying a Mercedes price for a Hyundai product. And they come out of school with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for what is a mediocre degree. Whereas where it used to be in the 80s, you get a great degree from a place like UCLA for a small amount of money. So I think we need to go back to the future and and kind of fall back in love with what I refer to as the unremarkables. It's so interesting hearing the the idea of going backward, because even radical people now find themselves often having to do that, of invoking the past rather than some new progressive idealized future. But I want to go, I, there may be a common link here, but I want to go back to the thing you've mentioned two or three times in our conversation as a as a culprit, namely algorithms. And what is the way to rein those in? And you think about the big stra- strains of political thought over the last first several centuries. They've been about sort of taming over mighty tyrants, kings, monarchs. That's how your country was founded. People sort of got their heads around how you do that. You knew, you knew, you drew up a brilliant document, the American Constitution, showing us how to do that. Now the human race is confronted by something very different, and you've put your finger on it in your work, uh, talking about algorithms. 
do we need to come up with a fix on on a similarly grand scale? In other words, something that stands alongside the American Constitution and you know Magna Carta to rein in and tame the algorithms that seem to control so much of our lives. Yeah, so 2010, we spent 3% of our life on phones. Now we spend 34% of our waking hours on phones. And the content we see is served up by algorithms. And these algorithms have a profit motive. They're not, the algorithms in and among themselves aren't inherently benign or evil. They're programmed by people who are programmed for profit maximization. And we're a tribal species and we're drawn to violence and disagreement. And so the algorithms recognize this and they think if we can encourage people to start arguing, if we promote content that's incendiary, you know, so the dissent, I want to start off by saying the dissenter's voice is really important. It's really important that we have a conversation around, you know, whether or not vaccines alter your DNA. But when you say that, the algorithm goes, oh, this really upsets people. And it causes a lot of heated conversation. So let's promote that, those statements around white supremacy or hate speech or anti-vax because that content inspires more enragement. And the enragement equals engagement, which equals more Nissan ads. And so what you find is some of this content, which is kind of dangerous and just blatantly false, gets more oxygen than it would on its own. And I think that's the first mistake is people assume that any discussion around whether these algorithms are bad is basically a decision around censorship. It's not censorship. If I go on my podcast and I say that your 15-year-old is running the risk of an enlarged heart if you give him a vaccine, I have an onus as a responsible person with a decent reach to fact check that and find that there's only been seven cases of that reported in all of Florida across the hundreds of thousands of young men who have received a vaccine. But that content inspires a very, very visceral reaction, and the algorithms love that, so they start elevating the content and giving it more oxygen and sunlight than would get on its own. So one, I think we need to remove some of the legal protections that these organizations have from some of the damage they do. And that is, if this podcast, if we could reverse engineer this podcast to teen depression and eating disorders— uh, this podcast would be legally liable, and we would probably start being more thoughtful around the type of content we put out. Right now, Facebook suggests extreme dieting sites to a 15-year-old girl who's 5'10", 100 pounds. Two-thirds of, ex- of extremist sites on YouTube that young men engage in are suggested to them by algorithms. And they have no real profit incentive to rein in that content. As a matter of fact, they have a profit incentive to keep it going because of Section 230. So one, I think it's regulation. I do think there's a capitalist solution, and that is just competition. Uh, because if Google and Facebook had six or eight competitors, P&G doesn't like what's going on with, with teen depression. They see the problems, but they don't have any choice. I'll spend 2 or $3 million this year on Facebook. It makes me sick to my stomach. But if you want to build an online education company, you kind of have a choice. The choice is do you spend money on Google or do you spend money on Facebook? It's just... If you want to, if you want to acquire consumers online, you have to spend money online. And there's three companies that get ninety cents on the digital dollar between Google, Facebook, and Amazon. So I think it's regulation. I think it's um, uh, uh, competition, increased competition. I would break these companies up. We have a proud legacy of antitrust in the U.S. where we right. go in and break companies up. And also, I don't think any of this really moves the needle until someone gets sent to prison. Um, I don't. 
You know, in the U.S., I don't know if you heard of the varsity blues scandal. We were talking about higher ed. But basically, there was this system where this consultant was saying to wealthy parents, give me $500,000. I'll give it to the Stanford sailing coach. He will submit their application and say that they're a sailor, and they will get in as a student athlete. Hmm. And the thing is, that happens every day, and these people uh, did it, and some of them went to jail. Aunt Becky, who or Lori Laughlin from a TV series here, went to jail. Mm -hmm. And if somebody calls anyone now and says, I can get your kid in for $500,000 under uh, posing as an athlete, they're hanging up the phone because they saw Aunt Becky from Full House do a perp walk. Right now, what's effectively happened with big tech is they have this parking meter in front of their house that costs $100 an hour to, impl to implement these moderation tools are expensive, and the, but the parking ticket is, costs 25 cents. So their motivation is to break the law and to continue to break the law because there's no real algebra of deterrence. Any fine we come up with is a fraction of their cash flow. Uh, so everyone was just just blown away by the $5 billion fine we levied on Facebook for violating our privacy and Cambridge Analytica. That's 11 weeks of profit, and it took us three years to get that through. So, so it, competition, um, regulation, and also I do think uh, uh, some of these – some of this delay and obfuscation around uh, covering up information as it relates to teen depression should be should have criminal uh, cr uh, criminal action filed against them. Uh, I have to ask you uh, before we let you go about the podcast medium, which you have been incredibly successful uh, in, and we uh, also interviewed your co-host uh, Kara Swisher, and we asked her what her secret for a pod distance relationship was with you and. Uh, she said patience. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder what you would say after hearing that she said patience. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan. Of, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I worked my ass off for 30 years so I could be an overnight success, courtesy of Kara Swisher. <laughs> so uh, I love working with Kara. The, the nice thing about, and we were going back to polarization, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a crude and profane person. I make all sorts of inappropriate jokes. Um, and I think the reason that, and one of the things I believe about um, it, progress around embracing each other, people of color, people of different sexual orientations, people from different backgrounds, is I think teasing is affection. I think we'll know when we've made progress, when we can make light of our differences. And one of the things I really enjoy with Kara is she makes fun of, you know, kind of what a jarhead fraternity boy I am. And... <laughs> I, you know, I make fun of her around how woke she is. And we talk about each other's sexual orientation very openly and we rib each other. And I think that's progress. And also when I say something inappropriate or profane, there's a, there's a quietness and a silence. And then when she laughs, it kind of gives everyone else permission to laugh. Because I think all of us <laughs> deep down find some of this stuff kind of funny. Uh, so what I really like about Kara is that she gives me cloud cover to be a little bit inappropriate. And people recognize that on the important stuff, there's a lot of people out there who are empathetic, good people, want the best for people, but still see humor, still can be crude or profane. It can be vulgar, and that's okay. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. Uh, so I absolutely love the partnership. It's, uh, it feels like you guys have a good rapport and a good partnership. The other thing that's really interesting about the medium is the medium really is the message. If Mm -hmm. If someone comes up to me 
and 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 gives me uh, like a like a you know they recognize me. I know they've seen me on TV. If somebody writes me a really long, thoughtful email, it means they've read one of my posts. The written word is really powerful when it resonates with people. If someone comes up to me and just starts talking to me as if they know me, <laughs> it means right. they listen Podcast. to the pod. Because there's something yeah. about being in someone's ears and them getting used to their voice. They begin to believe that you're speaking to them and that you have an informal relationship. And I don't know if this happens to the two of you, but there's something very intimate and familial about the podcast medium. And that's very rewarding because people come up and are they it's like your friendship goes starts at letter D. They just start talking to you as if they know you yep. and you know them. And then they have to mm-hmm. say, Oh, wait, it's been one way. Yeah, I know you, but you don't know me. But I, I find the medium fascinating. Um, I'm much more handsome on podcast. I have a very good looking <laughs> voice. Um, but but at TV it starts to all fall apart. But I've loved it and I've loved working with Kara. I think um, you'll need. To, uh, you're going to give me cloud cover for my profanity from. There you go. Oh, completely. You're so vulgar. There you go. So, you're so vulgar. vulgar. So uh, crude. Yeah, I, ch- I chose um, an Englishman. I'm not sure vulgar is exactly the operative I, word. I was um, <laughs> just when you said that, Scott. I was just thinking of how I was inappropriately over friendly to someone whose podcast I listen to all the time, and I realize I am that guy who comes up to you in the airport. <laughs> uh, I listen to a, a, a football soccer podcast. And I'm too, way too friendly to the host of it when I've met him a couple of times for exactly the reason you said, which is that in your ear, you feel they're your friend. So you, you've nailed it. It's so rewarding, <laughs> though. People, I, I was out with my kids. Uh, we went to Chick-fil-A, and uh, someone came up to me and started talking to me. It was such a nice moment for me. My kids still don't know what I do. And, <laughs> and people come up to you all the time and start talking to you. And you know, people say, how does it feel? And I'm like, it feels wonderful. It's really validating, and people are friendly, and people are nice. So I don't. I'm sure it happens to the two of you too. But it feels great. And what they say, which I find hard to believe, is that for every person that comes up to you and says hello, there's a hundred people who recognize you. And it's just yeah. funny to think that you have you walk into a mall and there's a hundred people that you sort of have a relationship with. It's a nice feeling, uh, and it also creates a level of responsibility. As my Audience has grown, and I, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel more of an onus to fact-check my data and be a little bit more thoughtful. Like yesterday when we did the podcast, I said, let's not talk about Ukraine. I just don't feel as if I understand it well enough to be thoughtful about it. And people people listen to us. Uh, but I find, the, I find the kind of the new friends you acquire on this medium, I think it's wonderful. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for being with us on Unholy. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us today. Thanks for your good work. It seems to me, Jonathan, there are very few people in the world who can kind of have this bird's eye view about the world we live in. And definitely Scott Galloway is one of them. What he said about education, and he's, he's really preoccupied by this and the fact that he, he stands and he talks to people who are responsible for Ivy League. And for he says, what is the point of having only just this minute percentage of enrollments when you, can, you need education to people who can't actually get it? And what the effects of that is, by the way, if you've read Educated by Tara Westover, you realize just how important it is. I think that is something that he that is very important. He talks about Israel in a very, you know, obviously has a family connection here. He talks about that in a very loving way. His uh, glasses are very optimistic when he looks at the Israeli society. 
There's a little hint of rose in the tint there, <laughs> I agree. Um, I thought on education, yes, uh, fascinating that thing of colleges actually reveling in the fact that how many people they're sending away. Yeah. And he makes the point that's people then denied that level of education. But also, um, th- there are many people who talk about tech, but as clearly and as accessibly as he does about algorithms, how they work, you don't have to be a, you know, a tech whiz to understand the issues as he formulates them surprisingly few people can really do that really clearly and then uh, of course his his take on sort of men and this new generation who are growing up sort of poor single uh, you know not eligible mm-hmm. as as partners i mean it's just a brave thing to say actually and just a very interesting thing and of course he had some advice for us didn't he about um podcast <laughs> life and he gave it back in march i don't think we were actually taking that did we take that advice not really not really you're too too polite for it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't, I feel too British really to fully embrace the advice, but I enjoyed hearing it. <laughs> and and I did like what he said as well about how podcasts are a medium. They're a kind of intimate medium. I yep. mean, listeners do feel they've, they sort of, you know, they kind of know you. And I, I think I've said this. I mean, even as a listener myself, I do feel that with the, yeah. with the podcasts I listen to. You think they're your friends, and that's a really, or you feel about them as if they're your friends. And which not is a, a really good thing. It is a good thing, and not only that. The funny thing is, for me at least, um, experiencing this as a co-host, the the people who come up to me and say that episode when Jonathan was talking about Boris Johnson taking his notes in a whatever a press conference. You know, people remember they come up to me not only to talk about me, which happens on other occasions in Israel too, but just to talk about you, which is which is a fun experience that I need to update them about your life as well. So that is, yeah, that's no, a funny thing to do. Um, so we loved hearing from Scott Galloway. That was a treat. There will be another treat for you next week because as your neat will never hesitate to point out, I'm taking quite a long break <laughs> and therefore we will have another conversation we love for you a week from now. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.